0: This morning, let's turn together to Ephesians chapter 5, and we began last week at verse 7 uh, in this new section of uh, Scripture, here for us, 7 to 14. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking just primarily at verses 11 to 14 as we covered those others last week. But let's read it together for context. As you know, the Apostle Paul has begun here telling us of the worthy walk in him, in chapter 4, this is the responsibility of our redemption, of what it means to know Him as Lord and Savior. We just cannot give lip service to the King. Uh, Jesus said it in John 14 15, if you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commandments. And so there's a reality to obedience, not perfection, but faithfulness in our lives. And so here we see walking worthy of the manner of which we've been called in chapter 4. We're also called to walk in newness of life and not walk as we once walked, as the Gentiles do. But yet at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul begins with another dimension of the worthy walk, and that's to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so when we come uh, to verse 7 here, uh, we're given another aspect of this worthy walk, and this is at the end of verse 7, to walk as children of light. To walk as children of light. And so let's read together here, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 to 14. The apostle says, Therefore do not become partners with them, For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord what a great hope that we have in this glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ the psalmist says this in Psalm 55 22. he says cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain you for he shall never suffer the righteous to be moved isn't that a great verse cast your burden upon the Lord for he shall sustain you and he will never suffer the righteous to be moved in a culture that is moving rapidly that is disintegrating on the downgrade it's what Spurgeon called the downgrade at the end of the 1800s it's when he was warning of the churches of his time to not embrace in a worldly methodology just to be politically correct to the culture because the inference was is if you embrace a worldly methodology you'll have to come up with some imperfect theology in order to justify the methodology and therefore for us in the body of Christ the issue is never promotion, marketing, new campaigns, bumper stickers, slogans, whatever it may be. It's faithfulness to a holy God, isn't it? It's faithfulness. It's honoring him in all things. So whatever heavy burdens we have, we roll it upon omnipotence. We roll it upon the almighty God. It it is his burden then. It crushes us, but when the Lord takes it, he makes nothing of it. He will sustain us. It will be on Him and not on us. Our worst fear is when our trials should drive us from the path of duty out of fear. But this is the Lord. He will never suffer His people to be moved. He will honor us in our faithfulness him, He sustains us. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. But the righteous before him, though we endure affliction, it will never move us from salvation in Christ. It will never move us from the truthfulness of God's word and from being faithful to him. So if Jesus accepts us as righteous, it is in Jesus that he will keep us if he accepts us as righteous, it is he who will keep us. So what about this present moment? What about the fears in the society in which we live? If we're going forth in this day's trial, if Our shoulders are oppressed again by the burden and the load that we should have and to carry. We should not be so foolish as to take that burden upon ourselves, but we are to cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. Therefore, we may walk faithfully in love, in newness of life, in a manner worthy of the calling, not walking according to the former life, not walking according to the times and being, as it were, pulled in by the things of this world at any given moment, but we may walk in love and walk as children of light, and we can be joyful and sing praise to the one true God who has taken all of our burdens. Amen? This is our great hope in Him. He is the burden-bearing Savior, and so therefore the mourner can be comforted because our burdens are completely cast on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now again, what a week that we've had. What an amazing week in our culture that we've had. Didn't it break your hearts to see what was revealed about Planned Parenthood and the literal wholesaling of these little aborted babies' lives for their liver and lungs and hearts and kidneys. If you saw it all, that testimony brought uh, on the newscasts of those videotapes uh, of the uh, head doctor, the lead doctor for Planned Parenthood, who was saying with just unbridled callousness, of how she would take the forceps and crush the head of that child and crush below, but she did everything she could to protect the internal organs so that they could be sold afterwards. That is what man's view of the sanctity of human life is left to apart from the standard of a creator God in those lives. And the sad thing is we have a president that embraces this and has even prayed, Lord, bless Planned Parenthood. Does that bother you? It should. It should. Anytime government wants to vilify the wholesale slaughter of unborn children, that should deeply concern us. And it should concern us that one who occupies the White House who says he's a Christian, embraces that which is destructive to a little, little child. Unthinkable, isn't it? This is unique to our day, beloved, in which we live. Never before has the, in the history of the church, in 2,000 years of church history, has this ever been encumbered upon us as a people. And so here, with all that's gone on in society, We are in a wonderful need of revival and reformation, a dramatic need to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, to return in faithfulness to a holy God, to call those who are living in unbridled, abject behavior against these things, against the standard of God's truth for marriage, against His standard for that which is carefully created by Him in the mother's womb. When society now calls evil good and good evil, it is to that kind of society that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that we must unbridled and in a way unstuttered speak truth to power and to call a nation back to repentance in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Listen, the only hope for our nation is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it not? That is it. That is where we are, and this is not a time for Christians to be politically correct. And it certainly it is not a time for Christians to mask what they believe. We are to be bold for the things of the Lord. And I'm so grateful that literally millions of believers through all matters of media and social media and individual town hall gatherings and in their churches are praying for revival, are trying to encourage people to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. May I encourage you to pray for our own heads of state, to pray for our president and his family. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? This would be a tremendous blessing. Wouldn't it be great if members of Congress and of the House, the Senate, would come to know the Lord. And we need to pray for those judges as the third arm of the branch of government, the judicial branch. Pray for these Supreme Court justices that if they don't know Jesus, that they would come to know him as Lord and Savior. Because our problem in our nation is not economic, it's not education, it is not politics, it is theology. It is a spiritual issue. And it's to that issue, I believe, for such a time as this and the sovereignty and providence of God that the Apostle Paul has us in Ephesians chapter 5 in this great section of Scripture. Because he's talking about our responsibility to the gospel as his regenerated people. And he's breaking down that responsibility for us here by way of review from last week. We saw the difference here between walking as children of light and walking in darkness. If you notice here, Scripture has a use of light, and it has two aspects of the use of light that we saw last week. There's an intellectual aspect of light in Scripture, and there is a moral aspect of light in Scripture. Both are used today for us to equip us to do battle, as it were, in society, the church militant. Intellectually, biblically, light represents truth. It's the light of God's Word. His Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Morally, it represents holiness. We no longer walk in darkness. We walk in the light. If you'll go back just a few verses here this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, and we see this in verse 7. In, uh, in Ephesians 5 and verse 7, Paul says we are not to walk as we once walked. In other words, we are not to become partners with them. That means the Gentiles. Paul is encouraging them not to partner with those that you once displayed your darkness. He says that for at one time you were darkness. That goes to depravity. That goes to the nature of man. Not that they were simply in darkness. They were darkness. But now he says, You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Light has a truth component to it. Light has a moral component. And again, by way of review, we see this in verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. Good, right, and true. And this has an impact in our lives as people of God, in the church as well as in society. The goodness there that he speaks of is simply the highest of moral standard. He's speaking there of the morality that we are to live among each other and among God's people and in this world. It is the good and high moral high ground, as it were, of a life that's regenerated and saved by God. Secondly, we see that word good and right. This literally is the same word for righteousness. As we want to live good moral lives to our neighbors, in other words, it's a way to love our neighbor. That speaks of the horizontal relationship. We are to live that which is righteous. This speaks of the vertical relationship, a life of holiness, a life of duty, a life of godliness and reverence before a holy God. So he says, if you're in the light, the fruit of life is found in moral goodness as well as in righteousness before God. And then also in what is true. What is true? We know the word of God is true. Jesus said again in John 17, 17, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. So we need look no further place than the truth of Scripture to find out what is true. So to live in light means to live in truth, And to live in holiness. And this is what the apostles calling us to. Secondly, last week we saw the figure of darkness also has an intellectual and a moral component to it. Intellectually, it represents ignorance and falsehood. Ignorance and falsehood. If you are in darkness, you have rejected the truth claims of scripture. If you are in darkness, you have rejected all that is good and right and true before a holy God. And morally, it connotes evil. We saw this again over the last several weeks in Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Timothy chapter 3. Those huge long lists of a reprobate mind and those things that are given over to a moral and intellectual falsehood. And so we know that men, before they come to know Jesus, as our Lord said in John 3, always love the darkness rather than the light. So when we are regenerated, when we are born again, we have gone from darkness to light, from air to truth, from goodness, pardon me, from evil to good and right and true. And so the Apostle Paul is not assuming anything here for us, at this wonderful church of Ephesus. He is saying, you don't be partners with them. You were once in darkness, now you are in the light of the Lord. And so he calls us, as we saw last week, number one, to remember our depravity. We were once in darkness, now we're in light. And then secondly, we saw last week, not only are we to remember our depravity, we are to recognize our duty. And the recognition of that duty is to walk as children of light. If we are now the light in the Lord, that should be the new habit of our lives. That's how we know who is saved and who is not. We see it evidenced in their life faithfully in how they are to walk as children of light. Notice Paul brings an interesting phrase to this in our duty. He says in verse 10, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's a very interesting phrase. We know that according to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, that That milk is for the immature, but spiritual meat is for those, meaning the Word of God is for those who are learned by constant use to have that truth permeate their lives and they're able to discern between what is evil and what is good. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying here, that we are to discern that which is right before the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 he says but just as we have been approved by god to be entrusted with the gospel so we speak not to please men but to please god who tests our hearts there we get an understanding of what it means to please the lord we are to live to him and then in 1 Thessalonians 5 and in verse 21, he says, Test everything and cling to that which is good. We're to test it. We're to examine all things in light of Scripture. And we are to cling to that which is honorable and good. So to discern what pleases the Lord literally means how to apply the truth of Scripture every day to our lives to concentrate the issue of our lives according to Scripture. No wonder Proverbs talks about the skill of godly living. One must thoughtfully discern and apply and practice in order to live what is pleasing to the Lord. So now this morning as we come to the back half of these verses 11 to 14... We see two more components of what it means to walk as children of light and to be imitators of God. Number three, as we look at our text this morning, not only are we to honor the Lord by remembering our depravity, in other words, have a healthy recollection of what we were saved from, the greatness of our sin, And we are to recognize our duty as to walk in children of light. One of those duties is, number three, to reprove works of darkness. To reprove works of darkness. This little word, reprove, it's translated here in the ESV as expose. Now we need to bring some careful uh, meditation on this particular verse because people might think that this is to run some sort of Heraldo-esque expose uh, on people's lives and that's not what it means. It doesn't mean to go on the nightly news and expose the works of evil that are going on in in the world or even uh, within the church or even in our own lives personally. Far from it. It means to reprove. It has the meaning of convincing through argument or careful biblical discussion. So, when we come to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, but to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose them. What does this mean? It means to give a godly reprimand, to call into account... It also can mean to chasten or to punish. What does this mean for us in an everyday life, the practicality of this life? Uh, let's look together at a few verses that I think will give us insight into this text. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning and verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. These are two of the most important verses in all of Scripture on the veracity, authority, sufficiency of Scripture found anywhere in the Bible. As you know, as you're turning there, it broke my heart to see a former CCM artist and friend of mine who has written some beautiful songs in the past come out and announced just two weeks ago that he is no longer embracing the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Inerrant means without error, infallibility means it's true in all of its parts and all that it proclaims. He no longer believes in the divine inspiration of Scripture. In fact, he's gone to the point of saying not even all Scripture is inspired. The question I try to ask him directly and I have not heard yet back from him was how do you know if you don't accept all of God's Word as God's Word, how do you know which parts are inspired and which parts are not? How do you know which parts are full of error and which parts are not? How do you know which parts are truthful in all of its respects and which parts are not? Listen, we honor the Word of God for being the Word of God because its author is perfect and without error and true. If this was a human book, we could see cause for error, but it is not. It is Scripture. It is all of God's Word. So, when we come this to 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verses 16 and 17, notice this. He says, all Scripture is theonoustos, breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Here's the effect, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, this goes to the heart of a, of a very important word that we like to use for scriptural truth, and it's, being, it's the word inspired, inspired. This is what it means uh, when we speak that scripture is the inspired, holy word of God. What does that mean? What does it mean that we believe scripture is is the inspired Word of God. Let me uh, recall uh, some words here by, by J.I. Packer, a dear brother in Christ who has written in his wonderful little book, 18 Words, on revelation, inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, in Scripture. I would highly commend that little book. It's inexpensive. It's not long. It will encourage you in the authority of God's Word scripture he says is divine writing that's what we mean by inspiration all scripture every part of it is inspired by God this reference can be said at once has no psychological overtones it does not imply that the biblical authors all wrote in a state of ecstasy or abnormal abnormal heightened consciousness or yet they wrote in as some sort of automaton but in some sort of trance but no Inspiration, Theonustas, means that the word is breathed out from God, literally expired. Expired out of God. It's not that man wrote words or was taking dictation and God somehow came and infused the holy word of God with divine inspiration, made human words divine. No, on the contrary, we know that's not true. Second uh, Peter Chapter 1, uh, verses 20 and 21 clearly state this, knowing that, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy, listen to this, was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is inspired writings. Inspired writings. That's what we mean by this. So, Packer continues when he says that this statement simply means that all that comes under the category of Scripture simply comes from God. We accept that unequivocally here this morning, do we not? Scripture is God's Word, and that's why we come to it. It means that God is giving His divine revelation to us. God has breathed it out through the Holy Spirit, by the agency of a human author, but yet he has bore it all along by virtue of that which men spoke as they spoke from God. So when scripture says that the biblical writers were God's in the same sense that the prophets when they preached were God's voices so that all that was written could be introduced with the same confidence and formula as the prophets spoke when they said thus says the Lord. Anytime that we are reading God's word it is thus says the Lord. This is the duty of any pastor, is to come and exegete God's Word. It's to understand what the text of Scripture is saying and therefore is meaning and how we are to apply it in our everyday lives. So beloved, when you are holding Scripture in your hand, electronic or otherwise, when you are holding the Word of God, you are holding that which is the most sacred thing in all of this life that you will ever hold, and that is the Holy Word of God. It is the Bible. It is Scripture. And so we read that that Scripture has a multiplicity of purposes here for us. Notice here what Scripture can do. Paul says it here in an economy of words. He says it is profitable for four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Here we come to what the what Paul says we are to do in Ephesians 5, it is for reproof. Reproof. Again, this is the same word he uses in Ephesians 5 for the word to expose. And what it means is to encourage people to stop doing what's wrong by the sheer command of Scripture. To stop doing what's wrong. Notice, it not only teaches us that gives us the meaning of what God is wanting to say to us through the reading of scripture, the teaching of scripture, but for reproof to stop doing what's wrong, for correction to start doing what's right, and to train in righteousness. It righteousness. It is the key component of our sanctification. If we want to know how we are to live before a holy God, we come to the truth of scripture. It trains us in righteousness. It encourages us on how we are to live. And we have the confident assertion to know that we are complete, equipped for every good work. So how is it that you can use your spiritual gifts? How is it that you can function properly within the body of Christ? How is it that you can become effective witnesses to this generation? It's through the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture. This gives us a little insight as to what the apostle was meaning here by expose Expose. Let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 2. Paul is encouraging again a young Timid Timothy on his heavenly charge and calling. And he tells Timothy to preach the word. That's what we are to do as pastors. We are not to be clever storytellers or Contours, humorous within the pulpit. We are to preach the word. We're to be ready in season and out of season. Here's this same word again. To reprove, to rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Stop doing what's wrong. Here's the correction. Start doing what's right. We know how God wants us to live. To exhort means to take Scripture and apply it to everyday living and how we are to live. And we're to do that with complete patience and teaching in him if you go over to one other book for me the next book in 2nd Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 15 again Paul's writing to Titus I, I said to 2nd Timothy my apologies Titus chapter 2 verse 15 Paul's left Titus on a very troublesome island of Crete much like our culture today this was an evil place And sometimes the tendency is is to create a holy huddle of God's people so we don't have to be around those troublesome things in the world. But yet we're to be in the world, just not of the world. So he says, declare these things. We are not to be timid as the people of God. Absolute truth means to be declared, exhort, applied to everyday life, the call to obedience and rebuke. Stop doing what's wrong with all authority. And then Paul uses a word here. It says, let no one disregard you. Peripharoneo. As periscope gives you the ability to look around, peripharoneo, Paul says, don't let anybody catch you off guard as a minister of the gospel With the ability to look around you to try to trip you up with unsound doctrine or human reasoning. He says, Don't let anybody look around you. Don't let anyone disregard you. Command these things, declare them, rebuke with all authority. We are not to be dismantled, as it were, in culture by those who would simply want to bring demise to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to speak the truth in love. We're to love our neighbors. We love ourselves. We are to go with humility and grace and boldness and plead with people to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are to rebuke with all authority. I tell you, there's a very vivid example of this. It's a familiar story to us, but let's go to Acts chapter 5 this morning. Verses 1 to 11. Here we see this wonderful couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And they had committed upon selling some of their property that they were going to give the proceeds to the church, to the apostles. And they were going to use that money to help meet needs within the church. And it says a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and they sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, notice they're doing this together, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is someone who maybe thought they would get 500,000 dollars for a piece of property. They got 700. They said, "Who's going to know? We'll just give 10 percent, we'll give 70. We'll keep the rest for ourselves. And yet, but they had committed a sin against God. Giving is important. Giving is important. Has the Lord blessed you with a house sale? We are to give accordingly a piece of property sold. We are to give to the church to help meet the needs, to carry on the work of the ministry. And this is what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. They kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. They thought they could do an end around on this. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Notice there's a spiritual component to line about what you are able to do in the support of a local church. He says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And beloved, there it is. All sin is first and foremost an affront against God and his holy character. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down. He breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. That's not a great way to end a worship service, is it? Judgment, though, came to Ananias. Now look at this. He says about an interval of three hours, his wife finally came in, Sapphira. Sapphira. She didn't know what had happened. She was out. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much? She said, yes. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out too. Amazing. Unbelievable. Strong rebuke. Strong reproval. People don't want to be a part of a church like that. It says, immediately she fell down at her feet, breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her and buried her alongside her husband. Notice the result. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You see, worship is, is serious. It is not to be played with. This is not something that we want to, even in our giving, do something that is foreign to the purposes of God, where we're playing fast and loose with the holiness and the character of God. And usually this revolves around money. Go with me to Acts chapter 13. Again, you know this story well, but here's an example of one that wanted to become a follower of Jesus for the sake of the buck. He thought he could purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there are people in our culture that will want to do the same. It says, But Saul, who was also called Paul, he, Acts 13, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. This is Alimus, the magician, This man opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Notice what Paul says. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a period of time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went out trying to seek people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amazing. Amazing. Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8 tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's Elimus in Acts 13, thought he could come against them. Strong rebuke, command against them, a reproving of the works of darkness. In Matthew chapter 23, if you would just like to write that down as a cross reference, these are the seven woes that the Lord Jesus Christ gives in confronting and reproving the Pharisees who were putting on the backs of the people a false gospel a false religion a false way to have eternal life and he dismantles them verse by verse by verse in Matthew chapter 23 he comes against the legalistic standards of a false faith and he confronts them on the false gospel that they were placing their own eternal value in And he calls them blind guides and gnats and he gives them that pronouncement of eternal judgment when he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Strong words. These are the reproof that a pastor must make and men of God must make. And what Paul is saying, even the church of the Lord Jesus Christ must make when it comes to the works of darkness we know what those works are the Apostle Paul has already told us those things in Ephesians chapter 4 we have a glimpse of what those works of darkness are he says they become callous they're giving themselves over to sensuality greed every form of impurity he says you haven't learned Christ this way falsehood stealing anger He said, these are not the fruit of what it means to walk in the light, or to take no part of the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, reprove them. What does it mean? It means that we must call a president who believes in the killing of unborn children and of restructuring of marriage as between two men or two women to repentance. Because he's trying to justify it biblically. We're to use every tool in our arsenal to call this generation away from the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, reprove them. Now notice there's a a balance to them. In verse 12, Paul says, for it is shameful even to speak of the things which they do in secret. He's putting some restraint, some guardianship on the words because we don't need to replay verbally or in that calling of a, of a chastening, of a, of a repentance, of a reproving to people that don't know Jesus. We're not to, it's, it's shameful to even speak about what they do in secret, Paul says. Sin loves darkness. As Calvin says, the night knows no shame, there's no blush. Jeremiah 3.3 in people's lives these days. Anything seems to be under the guise of it doesn't hurt anybody else I'm free to do whatever. And so when we see evil called good and good called evil we must reprove the darkness. This takes courage, beloved. This takes courage. John the Baptist had that kind of courage in front of Herod. Paul had that kind of courage in front of Felix. Well, we have that courage in our day. And so he says, Reprove those works of darkness. Lastly, this morning, and I'm so glad the apostle ends with this Rejoice in your deliverance. Rejoice in your deliverance. Here's our joy. Here's the pinnacle of walking as children of light. Notice this in verses 13 and 14. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. It becomes visible. Would you turn back with me, please, to John chapter 3. And here Jesus has been sharing and giving this great gospel message to Nicodemus, And he's now sharing the gospel, John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. We know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Good news, isn't it? The gospel, good news, eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be, here's our word, exposed. We always love the darkness. Listen, before I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior on my best day I loved the darkness. I didn't want to come to the light. Why? The light Exposes the darkness. The light of the gospel exposes that. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, there's the rejoicing of our deliverance. It's part of the gospel. It's the light of the gospel that exposes the darkness of our sins so that by God and his grace, that we must repent and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. This has an Old Testament reality to it as well. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60 in verse 1? Isaiah chapter 60 in verse 1. This portion of Scripture in Ephesians 5, arise, I love that, he's waking us up Arise, O sleeper. Arise from the dead. This is taken from a couple of verses in Isaiah. Paul is quoting Isaiah here. In Isaiah 60, verse 1, he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. What is this? As walking as children of light, we are to bring the light of the gospel not only to this world, but it is to be visible in our lives. It's part of our hope. It's part of our rejoicing. We were once dead in sins, but now we have arisen with Christ in newness of life. This is what Isaiah says also. In Isaiah, pardon me, in Isaiah chapter 26 And in verse 19, here the prophet is speaking again of being risen in newness and the songs of joy that we are to sing. Music gives expression to our praise like nothing else does. It gives us a song to sing, a song of praise to the Lord as we've done this morning. And Isaiah says in verse 19, your dead shall live their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. What an amazing passage of scripture. Arising for joy, singing for joy, knowing that our hearts now are filled with the light of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we sing songs of praise here, beloved, you are free to worship. Some here will raise their hands in joy and praise to the Lord. Others may remain seated and that's okay. It's not the physical position of the body, it's the spiritual condition of the heart. But when you sing, let us sing for joy because he's put a song in our hearts. No wonder the psalmist says, let the redeemed people of God say so. We sing good news, no greater love song than Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, gave his life for us as sinners, rose from the dead, and he's coming again. We have a heavenly song to sing. Thy statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage, the psalmist says. Let my tongue sing of thy righteousness, in Psalm 119. What great music we can sing as the redeemed people of God. We can make joy in our hearts to the Lord, and even in jail, as Silas and the Apostle Paul, at midnight in their incarceration, they could be heard, the jailer and the other prisoners, they were singing a hymn of praise to God. Worship is not just what happens Sunday morning. It's 24-7 in our lives, isn't it? Great hope, great joy, great singing, great songs that we get to offer to the Lord. One of those precious New Testament songs is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79. This is known as part of Mary's Magnificat. And here, it was a wonderful prophecy of the Holy Spirit in in Luke 1 that gives a cause for rejoicing with Mary, that she was going to be the blessed among all women Her soul was going to magnify the Lord and her spirit would rejoice in God her Savior. And then we see also with Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist. They were both expecting at the same time and hear the prophecy to Elizabeth that there would be great rejoicing, that her son would be a prophet. And then at the end of this great first chapter of Luke, we see Zacharias. Prophecy, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verses 78 and 79, he says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is great rejoicing, great hope, great deliverance with the coming of Messiah in Jesus Christ. Nowhere does that resonate more clearly in the epistles than in Romans chapter 13. And we're going to close with this this morning. We're to walk in love and we're to walk in light. We're to walk in all that is good and right and true. We're to, we're to reprove works of darkness. Were are to encourage people, flee, repent from those things. Show what the biblical model is in our day for marriage. so of the importance of that unborn child and the, the importance of the sanctity of life. These are things, these are hills to die on in our culture today. In Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14, Paul says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to speak, pardon me, to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so that let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Here he's using light as for spiritual battle. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, Sensuality, sexual morality, quarreling, jealousy, all matters of sins. He says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Think of any way, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, anything that we face in this world is a sin issue, is darkness. But he says, Put on the Lord, walk. Properly, as in the daytime. Here's the fruit of new generation. Not sinlessness, but faithfulness. Faithfulness in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we are to live. This is what we're to do. I don't have this scripture listed above, but I would like for you to turn there with me. You might say, Brother, what does that actually look like? How do we know what it means to walk in the light? How do you know what it means that when we rejoice in our deliverance and when Paul says to walk properly, how do we know what that looks like? Go with me please as we close this morning, 2 Peter chapter one. 2 Peter chapter one and verses six to 11. Here's what this looks like. Very practical. Here's why Peter is writing in fact this epistle He begins by saying, this very reason, this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, and here he gives a list. If you've never discipled someone, I would encourage you, here's how you disciple them. He first gives the first characteristic, virtue, this is moral excellence. And then you add to your virtue, knowledge, that's the truth of God's word. And then knowledge, self-control, that's obedience. And then self-control, steadfastness, that's endurance. And steadfastness, godliness, that means reverence before a holy God. And with godliness, brotherly affection. In other words, in the church, we are to deeply care and love one another. And then brotherly affection, he says, with love. This is sacrificial love sacrificial love he says if these qualities are yours and increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ virtue knowledge steadfastness godliness brotherly affection love this is how we can pray for each other this is how we can pray for ourselves we will never be unfruitful or ineffective as witnesses for the kingdom, as salt and light to this dying world, as walking in love, walking in a manner worthy of our calling, walking in newness of life, not walking after the Gentiles, walking as children of light. But notice this in verse 9, if you lack these qualities, whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. There's the gentle rebuke to our lives. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Again, not sinlessness, but faithfulness. A righteous man falls down seven times, but he gets up seven times. That's the life of repentance. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you see, my brothers, when we come before the Lord, when we honor Him, when we see that this is something that we can persevere for the kingdom, that we can walk worthy, it's a sign of our true salvation. It's part of our sanctification. We remember our depravity. We were once this way as sinners before we came to know Jesus. So it's a call to humility. We recognize our duty. We want to walk as children of light and we can pray, Lord, bear me the fruit of light, goodness, righteousness, truthfulness. And then we want to not only reprove works of darkness because we're in a culture that is flaunting darkness over light and evil over good. In fact, they're calling it light and good even though it's darkness and evil. We can boldly but yet gracefully rebuke, reprove, expose that of saying this is not honoring to a a faithful God. And then lastly, our lives should be marked with joy because we have been awakened from our slumber. Notice how Paul ends that phrase here in verse 14 and Christ will shine on you. Christ will shine on you. Arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. This is how we are to live. Next week as we look more faithfully of this worthy walk verses 15 to 21 we're going to see what part of God's will for us is in living This worthy walk. Listen, beloved, it is a desperate time in which we live. It is an evil time in which we live. America has sold its original heritage in Christ for something less than what it is. And we need to honor the Lord Jesus Christ with a life of obedience. The good news is, as the times get darker, the light in our lives will shine even the brighter. So this is a great time for rejoicing. It's a great time for evangelism. May I encourage you this next week to invite some friends and neighbors that maybe haven't come to church in a long time. Invite them. Do the work of the ministry. Bring them to hear the glorious good news of the gospel. Bring them to hear that there's hope beyond this culture in which we live the worldwide spiral down in so many key areas that are biblical issues we must be faithfully equipped to give a reason for the hope that's in us on those times these are serious times these are serious times and it takes people that are serious about the Lord Jesus Christ and his word to be a light this particular world in which we live in may that begin with us amen may we be faithful witnesses unto this end let's bow in a word of prayer together lord jesus we know that the firm foundation of the church is rooted in christ you are the chief cornerstone and there's no other foundation necessary And Lord, it's upon that foundation that we long to honor you. You are an awesome God. And we want to worship you and we want to praise you and we want to love you for who you are and to rightly see that evidenced in our lives. Lord, we are not to call a lost world arrogantly. We are not to go to them with Religious pride, saying, how could you do this? We are to go to them with humility and Christ-like love, encouraging them in the gospel. And Lord, even when we approach others within the, in the church, we are to do so with grace and humility, not with a bloviation of a finger-pointing, but we are to go with grace armed in light, to reprove, to correct, to train in righteousness, to exhort. And that exhortation means that we're willing to walk with others, to see them vibrant and healthy in their lives before you. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would make us these kinds of people in our own Hearts and our own fallen nature and our own sinfulness, we woefully fall short. But Lord, may those issues of virtue and knowledge and godliness and brotherly affection and love and all of it, Lord, may we encourage each other that way. May we pray for each other that way this week. For even the Apostle Paul said, I have not arrived at this. This life and this world is a journey. And may we not become ineffectual saints forgetting the great salvation with which we've been saved. But may we honor you, Lord, with the fruit of a life redeemed. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you as Lord and Savior. And in knowing that privilege, Lord, may we honor you this day. For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.